Welcome to Mountain Talk Monday. I'm your host, Kelly Haywood. This episode is a special one. Recently, WMMT reporter Mimi Pickering traveled to Lexington to visit the home and garden of Catherine J. Black, or Kate Black to familiars. Black is the former curator of the Appalachian Collection in the Special Collections at the University of Kentucky Library. She is also an author and released her book, Row by Row, Talking with Kentucky Gardeners, through Ohio University Press in 2015. In the interview that follows, Black shares how asking the question, why do we garden, can lead us on a journey through lifetimes, philosophies, politics, spirituality, community, health, and more. Through the stories in her book, Black confirms what every gardener knows. Our lives inform our gardens, and our gardens inform our lives. The interview begins outdoors in Black's Lexington Garden, just a short distance from the downtown area in the historic Bell Court. And then the pair shift indoors to discuss the book and how Black came to growing food, flowers, and trees, and writing about gardening in unconventional ways. So this is my Lexington garden. And unlike in eastern Kentucky, I don't have like a huge piece of land where I can just like have a huge vegetable garden. So I have flowers in places and herbs, but also um, I'll plant like it's too early right now, but I'll have some tomatoes, you know, and some of the and broccoli up here sort of mixed in with in flower beds. It allowed me to have space for the honeybees, something I'd wanted to do for a really long time. And it allowed me to have, make this little kind of native Kentucky forest here. <laughs> I bet all the trees, there's a lot of flowering trees I see in this neighborhood. I bet they're, they and the bees are happy that yeah. they coexist Yes, here. I think so. And you know, a lot of the things I planted, some of them flower at odd times, meaning for the bees. So I have these plants are called clethras they're flowering bushes and they bloom in the end of July when there's not that much for the bees to eat and I didn't do it with that in mind but it's turned out to be a great eco space for the honeybees actually no one in my family gardens even though we had this intense gardening scene except for me and my sister does a little bit down in she lives in Louisiana and New Orleans but I asked my brother, who's a blackjack dealer in Las Vegas and certainly doesn't grow vegetables there, has no interest in doing so. But at one time I asked him, what do you remember about our growing up? What strikes you? And he right away said, oh, our garden and all the food we grew and ate. So I think, you know, I think it's in us, like it or not. I'm Kate Black. On my book, it says Catherine J. Black, because that's my formal name, my family calls me. But I grew up in a very small town in rural northeast Arkansas, just below the 
Missouri line in kind of a place no one knows much about. The little town's name is Corning. And I grew up in a, a large Catholic family, which was very unusual in that part of the country. There weren't many Catholics. There were about 30 in our congregation, and my family was 10 of them. And we were a gardening family, too. When, by then, I was born in 1952, there were some gardens in town, but it wasn't probably like it once had been. My mother's not from there. She's from up north, as we would say. She grew up in Beloit, Wisconsin. And when she came to live in Arkansas, in our little town with my dad, my dad had promised her they'd never live in Arkansas. And a year into their marriage, there they were. And she was really horrified. And some people had a pig in the backyard. And she was like, oh my gosh, what have I done? But anyway, we were a gardening family. And she entered into that enterprise. And I don't know if she loved it, but she certainly did it. By the time I was born, my parents built a new house on the edge of town, and so we had a pretty large, like three acres, something like that. And half of that was given over to food production, and we had a lot of fruit. Like There you can grow boysenberries. It's too cold here to do it. We had boysenberries, grapes, blackberries, dewberries, strawberries, plum trees, apple trees, and then you know, a wide array of vegetables. Oh, we had blueberry bushes. We had asparagus beds. We had everything. We grew, I don't want to say we grew all our own food because my mother went to the store, of course, but we grew all our vegetables and we put them up. I grew up in an atmosphere where growing food, putting the food up, preparing the food and eating the food together those were all really important in my household. And so I, that's how I came to gardening, by having to work in the garden myself. A lot of the gardeners that I interviewed for this book, Row by Row, talked about how they hated the work they had to do when they were children. And I think I feel that way. I felt that way too. And so it's kind of funny that we all, somehow it sticks with us and then we come back to it later on when we can have our own gardens. But I'll never forget one time, and you know, Arkansas is hot. It's a lot hotter than it is in Kentucky. And so in the summer, it's, it's formidable, the heat and the humidity. And my mother sent me out to the garden to pick green beans. And there were so many green beans that... We had the teepee kind, and it just went on and on and on, and it was so hot, and I came in, and I was 10 or 12, and I came back in with about three water buckets full of green beans. I mean, it was a lot of green beans, and she looked at the bucket and said, you didn't get them all. <laughs> and I was just like, oh my gosh. So that's how it was. We worked really, really hard. I think I would also say that we were not a poor family, and we could have, I guess, afforded to buy all our food at the store, but that wasn't really the object at all. I'm sure it saved us money because there were so many people to feed, but it was really about learning how to do some, like, work hard, do manual labor, and I think my parents, and especially my father, felt gardening was a, a moral practice. 
you know, that if you can, you should try to, and if you have land, you should work it and try to grow food. He was actually a businessman. It's not like he was a farmer or raised cattle or anything like that. His mother had come from the Ozark Mountains, and she came from a subsistence farming family. And she knew how, as he said, she knew how to ring chickens, and she knew how to do everything. And she married into this family in eastern Arkansas, which was my grandfather, who was a businessman. And she had gotten an education at the University of Arkansas. Her parents had sent her and her sister, very unusual, in the early 1909 to go to college, and they both got college degrees. And she moved to our community, unmarried, to teach math in the high school. And there she met my grandfather, and he was better off than her family had been. They lived in this, you know, kind of nice white frame house on the main street where all the big trees were, the one street where the nice houses were, I guess you'd say. And she just dug up the side of the yard and put a garden in. It was kind of like frowned upon, but she did it anyway. My father came by that really honestly and watching his mother and he had grown up with someone who grew food and by golly, we were gonna also do the same thing. And one of the things I appreciated so much about the book, you know, you don't really see it looking at the title and the talking with Kentucky gardeners, but is that what you write about and what people talk about being gardening being so much more than just planting and growing food, like you were just talking about, sort of learning the importance of work and the moral value of right. hard work that just runs throughout the book. Right. These different. So tell me, um, then, how did you get to Kentucky and, and kind of back to the land in yeah. Kentucky? Well, that's a fun story, really. I think it's, um, it's set in a very historical moment, I think. I left Arkansas to go to college, and all I could think about was getting away from rural Arkansas. I liked my growing up. I, don't, I can't, I mean, it was normal. I think in most ways it had some problems and some good things. But I really wanted to get out of rural Arkansas. And I think the one thing I would criticize about the culture that I grew up in is that it was really anti-intellectual. And I wanted to learn stuff. I liked books and I wanted to read books and I wanted to learn things that I couldn't learn where I grew up. That was really important to me. So I went to school in Chicago, really outside of Chicago. It was an all-women's college, and it was Catholic. And my parents insisted that we go to Catholic schools because we hadn't had parochial schools where we grew up. You know, we went to public schools because that's what was there. And somehow they felt this was going to enhance our Catholic training. So I went to this college, and it was in Lake Forest, which is one of the richest I don't know if it still is, but it certainly was the most wealthy suburb in Chicago and of any place even in the United States. And so it was just this kind of strange place. It couldn't be more different than where I grew up, that's for sure. But I loved college. I loved going to college. I loved all the things I was learning. 
But one of the drawbacks there is people constantly made fun of my accent. It just was unending. It was so, after a while, just really annoying. And people thought they knew who you were and knew stuff about you. Anyway, so it was a mixed bag, you know, this dream I'd had of going up north to college. And it was wonderful on one hand and annoying on the other hand. So it was a very liberal school. And it was 1970, and that was a moment when a lot of colleges were experimenting with pedagogy and so forth. And so my college was one of those. You could make up your own major. You could do a lot of independent study. And so I started studying the South, this place that I'd worked so hard to get out of, you know. And it's like very typical story, very typical. I'm not unusual in that at all. And I just had this great Southern history teacher, and I studied Southern politics and literature. I started reading Faulkner and Eudora Welty and, you know, all these great writers. And it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. But in my reading, I kept seeing little things about mountain people. And I was like, well, why doesn't any of the literature reflect that experience? So for me, it was a very kind of organic, intellectual question. And I thought, well, I'm going to just... I'm going to find some place to go to and learn about, you know, the mountain south, as we all called it in that moment. And so I started doing some research, and I found out Berea College and Alice Lloyd College at the time had Appalachian Studies programs. And I don't know, just by feel, I thought, oh, I think I'm going to go to Alice Lloyd if I can get in there. That seems like it's more in the heart of the matter to me. And of course, I was absolutely right. I just didn't, it was a feeling I had from my reading and stuff. And so Alice Lloyd was actually a junior college then. But they had that wonderful Appalachian oral history project. And Don Anderson was there taking photographs. And Laurel Shackelford was doing interviews. And they were preparing for the book, Our Appalachia. And Mike Mullins was there. And... I got in. It was a junior college, but my college agreed to let me transfer. I was in my senior year, transfer the credit. So I went there for one semester initially. That was the goal. And I just loved it. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is so interesting. And I was learning so much. And so then I talked my college and let me stay another semester and then I just never looked back. You know, I loved it. I was learning so much. I graduated from college. I got a job at Alice Lloyd working for Al Stewart on Appalachian Heritage, which is where Appalachian Heritage's home really is. I was kind of his assistant. You know, I did a little of this and a little of that. I just decided I wanted to stay in eastern Kentucky, and I got a job at Appalachian Research and Defense Fund, being a paralegal and Anyway, that's how I came to Eastern Kentucky, to study, really. I had so much to learn. I still do. There's still a lot I don't know. But that's how I got into, the, into Eastern Kentucky and how I started educating myself about history and literature and culture there. And one of the things I understand you started doing was raising a garden in Eastern Kentucky. I did it. Alice Lloyd, I didn't, because, you know, if you've been to Pippa Passes, there's not much land to do anything with there. It's, you're really in a holler there. But eventually, I moved to, I was near a post office called Pyramid. Do you know it? Mm -hmm. And it's not on Wright Beaver, but 
connects more with Wright Beaver and Floyd County. And that's when I was working in Prestonsburg at Appalachian Research and Defense Fund. I rented a house up a holler there. My landlord lived at the head of the holler, and then I lived, you know, sort of before you got to their house in an old log house, and it was so cold, Mimi. That's the coldest place I've ever lived in. But I had a nice piece of land there, kind of. It was, there was a creek, and there was a nice fertile piece of land, and then the hill went up, and the house was there, and, the, and I started gardening there on my own. And, you know, I learned a lot from my neighbors. Uh, people were still gardening a lot in eastern Kentucky then. This would be 1975 or 76. And you could still get a lot of advice. And my neighbor came and plowed it up for me for no money. Somebody gave me manure out of their barn. You know, it was very much those practices were still alive. I learned how to grow different things that I had grown in my family garden and stopped doing so. Like okra didn't do so well there. It wasn't hot enough a lot of times. And I started growing organically then too. I probably was reading stuff like The Last Whole Earth Catalog. I didn't really know any Back to the Landers there. I met them later in Estill County because people were just still living on the land in eastern Kentucky. They didn't have to have back to the landers. So I just learned a lot from neighbors. And I was also working with a lot of young people at Apple Red. And many of them weren't from eastern Kentucky. And they were interested in gardening. So, you know, I was getting... I was influenced by a lot of different kinds of gardeners, both old-timey gardeners and young people trying to be gardeners, and then I had quite a bit of experience, but not in that landscape. I never stopped gardening after that. I mean, I had a little gap when I went to college, but when I came home, I would help in the garden at home. But then I realized I knew a lot. I knew how to can already, because I had helped my mother and watched my mother do it all my life. I fit in in that way. Yeah, ahead of some of us who had to learn it all from, from scratch. <laughs> so your book is in part an oral history, and or you did a lot of interviews, mm -hmm. and, and you've been active in oral history as a field. When you thought about doing this book, what were the approaches you thought about taking? First of all, I didn't think about doing a book, I'd say that. I've been thinking a lot about why do I do this garden? It's so hot. It's so hard. Every year there's terrible disappointments. The pestilence gets worse every year because it's harder to be a good gardener now than it used to be, I think, because there are more bugs and diseases, and it's just harder to get rid of them organically. I've been thinking about that a lot, about myself. Why do I keep doing this? I could just ride my bike down to the farmer's market. I live right in downtown Lexington. Why am I doing this? Why don't I go to a coffee shop on Saturday morning or something? And so I had really been questioning, not that I was going to stop, but I'd really been thinking about why am I so compelled to do this? And what is it about this that every year... Come February, I start thinking, oh, when do I get to start my seedlings? Because I start a lot of my own plants, too. 
I just get very excited, you know, and the rhythm of it is very determining of my life. So I'd been thinking about all that. And I thought, well, I wonder what other people think. It was a very, again, it was a very natural kind of intellectual question. I wonder how other people feel about it. I wonder what they'd say. And then I just thought, well, I'm going to start this project, and I'm going to interview people. That's how I do everything. I just think, well, this will be neat. I'm not that instrumental, really. And so I didn't think about it being a book, but I thought this would be a really great project. I think that gardening on one hand is a dying art, and on the other hand there are all these young people. I don't know about in eastern Kentucky because I don't live there anymore, but here in the city there's this resurgence of people being interested in gardening and urban gardening and food security, food deserts, all that kind of discussion. I just decided to do the project. That's how it all came about. I knew because of myself that it's more, you know, that the garden is shapes your life and your life shapes the garden. And so that, those are the two things I really wanted to get at. I didn't want to do a how to do it book. Other people can do that much better than I can and have done it and will do it. And I'm not that technical about gardening. I'd say I know some. You know, people talk about so-and-so's a master gardener, and I would never say something like that or try to be a master gardener. It's not something to master, I guess, for me. And so I really wanted to get at what the meaning that's made by a garden for people in their lives. That was really my goal, to use the garden as a way into people talking about their life stories too, vis-a-vis the garden. I just thought it could be kind of cool, and I don't think I realized how cool it could be until I started doing it. And I started out interviewing people around Lexington because that was easier for me to find people, and I'm here, I was here, and it didn't cost me anything, you know, to drive around Lexington much. And the, But then as I kept going, I thought, oh, I want to make this more of a Kentucky project. I'll learn more if I go into different regions. And so then I just started branching out into all parts of the state trying to find people who would talk to me. You know, I think Sandro Portelli says something like, it's not the facts that come out of oral history, it's the meaning that's made by it. I'm paraphrasing, he says it more eloquently than that. Uh, of course, Everyone talked about the green beans they grew in Kentucky because everyone worships green beans in Kentucky. So there were some similarities like that, but they weren't the same green beans. And, um, but really, people were talking about their lives, so they were, the stories were all different. There was very little repetition. But I really tried to make, I don't know what to call them. Um, my friend who's a writer says they're profiles. One of the things about the book, uh, there's so many things, but you know, it, it's subtitled Talking with Kentucky Gardeners. And I think we have kind of a stereotype of a Kentucky gardener. You know, you think about the obviously the t- the central Kentucky tobacco farmer mm-hmm. or the eastern Kentucky hard scrabble farmer and then of course we have the industrial farmers mm-hmm. more to the west, but you have a much broader scope of farmers or gardeners, I think, 
uh, in the book. Could you talk a little bit about that? It's I think it's just eye-opening. It is very cool. You mean about who the people are yeah. I interviewed yeah. or the different kinds? The of... different kinds of people yeah. and, and who they are. And, and also uh, the way that they're gardening, I think. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of people who garden in different ways. They have different gardening ways. Some people are really dedicated to organic gardening. Other people still use, you know, chemical pesticides, though not as much as I thought I'd find. Some people garden in buckets, like drywall mud buckets that have been emptied out, and they put dirt in them and put them out on the driveway, like this young, one young woman here in Lexington who lived in a neighborhood where there was just concrete everywhere and she just couldn't, there wasn't any soil, but she was from Eastern Kentucky and she just knew what to do and, and she made it happen for herself, you know, so she could grow her. She grew quite a bit of food in these drywall buckets. I met people who had been tobacco farmers and had gotten out of the business or were too old to be doing it anymore. It wasn't fruitful financially anymore but they still gardened and but those two worlds of starting the tobacco seeds and the tobacco beds and starting their tomato plants and planting lettuce along the side of the where they had gassed the earth or burned it off even earlier to sterilize the dirt to plant the tobacco seeds people still did that you know still did that practice even though they weren't growing tobacco anymore some people, when I ask them, oh, are you a gardener, are you a farmer, it was all, that seemed like a, not a, a smart question to them because it wasn't a question that they really asked themselves. They were inseparable. There were people I met who owned a lot of land and maybe had tried to save that land and then came back to gardening later, you know, in life. Maybe they'd been gardening a little bit all along, but then as they retired, they really did it much more elaborately than they had all along. I met people who were immigrants to Kentucky, to the United States. One young man, a Vietnamese young man, I think he's the youngest gardener in the book. He had come here when he was a little boy didn't know how to speak English. No one in his family spoke English. They moved to Louisville, where there's a large Vietnamese community. His family couldn't find what they needed for their cooking, the vegetables that they wanted. So after they left an apartment, they were in an apartment for a while, and they were able to get a house, they just dug up the backyard and started planting vegetables. But they weren't people who had even been gardeners in Vietnam. But they were desperate to have the food that they wanted to have. And maybe some of the things they could find in an Asian store in Louisville, but they weren't fresh. Ty, the young son in this family, he sort of watched that. But he also, every day he'd walk to school, and he would see this guy gardening in his backyard. And his name was Charlie Moore. And Ty would stop and talk to him, and then this guy took an interest in Ty, and he started guiding him. And so, in a way, he became his gardening mentor, really. And Ty still looks up to him. He learned a lot from him. There, Gloria and Don Williams, who grew up in Menifee County, their parents grew up in Menifee County, their grandparents, they've been there 
a long time. They know how to do everything in the old time way. But they also, I think, are so secure in that they belong there, that they can then experiment and do other things. And so they took up organic gardening. Now, I guess it'd be about 15 years ago, after a lifetime of growing things with chemicals and so on, you know, using things. And now they are totally organic. And even though they still grind their own corn and make meal, and they join, I remember she said to me, I think that's in the story I wrote about them, but she said, well, we're in a simple living club. And I remember thinking to myself, why would they need to be in a simple living club? They are simple living. But, you know, she explained, oh, we meet all these interesting people from Moorhead and Lexington and have this kind of group they're like doctors and lawyers and all these different people who are have come together to talk about seeds and organic gardening methods so that's Gloria and Don Williams there was an interesting interview the folks in out from Louisville the African-American family where the woman came from um, Georgia. Georgia yeah Bill and Maddie yeah. Mack yeah. yeah what a story that yeah was. they live in Meade County and the Macs, uh, Mr. Mac is from Kentucky in the Shelbyville area. But Maddie was from Georgia, and she had a very difficult early life, very difficult, very racist, the Klan. She was very poor. They lived in very poor conditions. But they met at Tuskegee. He had gone there to learn how to be a vet. And she had gone to, I'm trying to remember now, I think to become a nurse, yeah. And they fell in love there. You know, first of all, that experience at Tuskegee changed both their lives tremendously, but especially Miss Mack's life. And they fell in love, got married, and the night they got married, they hung tin cans on the back of their car which when I was growing up, I don't know if people still do that in the mountains or not, but when I was growing up, people did it in Arkansas, and you'd tie a string of tin cans onto the back of your car, and you'd have a sign that said, just married, and the people drove through, and the cans rattled on the road, and it was just a celebration, an announcement. And so the Max did that, and the sheriff uh, stopped them, and called them racist names and made them take the cans off. And Mr. Mack said it was an eye-opener, and he just said, we're getting out of here, and we're, we're going back to Kentucky. And, of course, you know, Kentucky wasn't the promised land where there was no racism or anything. It just took different forms, maybe not quite as harsh all the time. They came back to Kentucky, and they moved to Louisville, and they started, they're really hard workers, and their dream was to have a, their own land. They just worked really hard. They had two jobs. They lived in a small apartment in Louisville. And then they had this one, then they started looking for land to buy around. And Mr. Mack said, you know, there was no way we were gonna get land in Jefferson County because nobody would sell to black people, sell a piece of land. They met this woman that as Mr. Max said, I think he said she was half black. I think she was biracial at any rate. And she was a like a realtor and a land agent. And she helped them find 
this place that they now own in Meade County. And this black guy owned it. And he, this great story, I don't know if I'll tell it, I won't tell it as well as Mr. Mack, but they'd been going to all these places and people would just say, we're not selling you know, to black people. I think they said it more harshly than that. But they finally found this place and they arrive and Miss Maddie said, this is, the, this is our place, I want this place. So they talked to the owner who was black and he said, well, now y'all don't have no money. And, and they said, well, just give us a week. He wanted $10,000 down. He said, and they said, well, just give us a week. And he said, well, I've got some, somebody over at Valley Station, I think that's the name of it, who wants to buy this place. And they were white. And the Max went back to Louisville. They had $10,000. They'd been squirreling away their money. They were working two jobs and saving every penny they could to get this land. And they came back, and the white guy hadn't gotten there, and they gave him the $10,000, and they, then they made payments on the farm over the years. But that's how they got their land. So it's a wonderful story, and it's hard. I, I think I start the piece out saying something like, I can't believe Maddie wanted to be a farmer and a gardener and live on the land after her early experiences. But that's where she ended up. Yeah, it's just a, an amazing profile of them as individuals, but you get also this whole, as you just told it, this sort of history of, of race relations in this country, you know, in, those, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s as well, just in that profile. And I, I'd also want to add to that, that just because they got that land, they had to make payments on it, then they had to keep the land, they had to pay the taxes on it and keep it, and... Mr. Mack worked in a chemical factory, chemical production all his life, so they kept working many jobs. It's been very difficult for African Americans to hold on to land that they had. There have been all kinds of ways in which they've been forced off land that they own legally and otherwise, and, so, and how the legal system has been used you know, against African-American farmers and landowners. It's even more of a testament to the Max that they still have this land free and clear. It's an unusual, in Kentucky, it's a more unusual situation. There's another family I interviewed who live in Kenton County. You know, who knew? You think you just drive through Kenton County on your way to Cincinnati on I-75, right? I never thought about Kenton County having farmland. Well, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. And there are all these high ridges, and it's a very interesting landscape. And I met these people, Paul and Valeria Riley, who own several hundred acres there. Anyway, they're about 15 miles from Covington. And they live at the end of a long road up on top of a ridge. And this land has been in their family since right after the Civil War. They're African-American. And it's Paul's family. Valerius from grew up in the coal fields in southwest Virginia and with her grandparents, visiting her grandparents a lot there. Her parents were out migrants and moved to Cincinnati. So that family's part of a lot of stories that we know from Eastern Kentucky history. But Paul, his family held on to this land all this time. They raised tobacco. I mean, it's just his elders. They got the land after you know the Civil War, 
and they held on to it and held on to it and held on to it. And then when he met Valeria, he had come home from Vietnam and he got a job at Procter & Gamble, a good, you know, union blue collar job. And it allowed him to keep the farm, working at that job all those years. And Valeria had good jobs too, like working in the trade. She became an electrician and later she was a caterer. But they worked hard and every day they drove to Cincinnati from that farm an hour each way. An hour there, an hour back across the river in order to live there and keep that farm. So there are a lot of people that I met who I think have made heroic efforts to keep land. And not just to have land so you can have land, but to live on that land and be with that land and grow food on that land and improve that land and take care of that land. And not as an investment, not as a financial investment because these people are not getting wealthy off this land. In fact, the other way around, they put a lot of their wage money into holding on to that land. And so I think, you know, one of the sad questions I think that's raised in the book, though I do in a couple of the pieces, and the Rileys are a case in point. Who's going to, they don't have someone, they have kids, but their kids at this point are not that interested. They live in cities and are doing other things. And, you know, it just takes one person, like Paul in this case, he had a lot of brothers and sisters and they scattered, but Paul stayed there and saw to that. And then Valeria, he met Valeria, and she saw to it. And I don't know who's going to see to it when they can't do it anymore. So I think that this is a, a lingering question that's brought up by row by row. You know, there are all these young people in Lexington who are gardening and urban gardening, and it's hip and in, and, you know, I totally am all for it. I'm not knocking it. But that's a very different situation than the Max and the Rileys and what's gonna happen to their land if one of their kids don't come along and it right now it doesn't look that way, but I don't know what'll happen. Yeah. And also the fact that it's black owned land makes it even more precious to me because they've had to fight even harder to hang on to that than many white people do for a variety of structural reasons in the economy, right? And what do you think is that connection, the, that importance of that family and like the Rileys who've been there since... Since the Civil War, yeah, post-Civil War, War, yeah. You know, the, there's history there. There's still people in eastern Kentucky who can say, you know, I've, we've had this piece of land for eight ten generations mm -hmm. now and that was something growing up in California that was really foreign to me everybody's a newcomer but that that real sense of uh, history that's right there in that piece of land well you know I think Bev May is a great example of that she's from Floyd County and she lives on land that her grandparents had I'm not sure how far back it goes it may even go to great greats and she built a house there where a barn used to be on their sort of family, in their family plot of land. And she talks a lot about that, about how 
she sits there and she realizes her garden her garden sits down in a bottom which is both good and bad it's been flooded before but also the soil's very rich and it's level uh, so you know it's not hard to to work in it it's not on a hillside or something she said i realized there are no rocks in my garden and that's because the people before me picked up all the rocks and you know, threw them in the creek or did something else with them. So for her, that, that presence is very, it's both a present and a presence, you know, that she doesn't have any rocks in her garden to contend with, which if you've ever gardened in eastern Kentucky, that's a wonderful gift because uh, there are often lots of rocks in the, you know, on the sides of hills and alongside of the creek and everything. So I think for her, the presence of her, those who came before her is very great. I think that's true for a lot of these people really trying to hold on to their land. Gloria and Don Williams that are from Menifee County, their mother lives right there. They all still live right together. She talked about how her dad, who was a carpenter, built a lot of the houses in the county. She can drive into town to Frenchburg to the store and see houses that her dad built. Jake Powers, I think that's his name, Jake Powers. So there are a lot of people who are very connected in old, old ways and in community ways. You know, it's their community. It's not just their family, but it's really the place where they've always been. And it means, you know, and on the other hand, there are newcomers who are making community through the garden. You don't have to be someone whose families lived there for seven generations for it to become meaningful for you. I think that's the beauty of growing food and tending land, that you can become... I mean, here I am in Lexington. I'm not from here, but I've lived in Kentucky now far longer than I lived in Arkansas. I have a love-hate relationship with Kentucky. Because, you know, sometimes politics here are very difficult. But I also love it at the same time. And I'm here right in downtown, practically downtown Lexington. But I've got a piece of land back there, and I am definitely attached to that piece of land. Last year, the people who lived next door to me tore down a concrete block garage and tore up a, the pad it was sitting on. And, you know, concrete's toxic. They didn't do it properly, the contractors, the city wouldn't come, there was concrete dust everywhere and it all blew onto my garden. I've been sick about it, sick, sick, sick. I couldn't stop it. And, you know, I've always been somebody who, uh, when I lived in the mountains, was against certain environmental practices and destruction, and I still am, but I hadn't lived in the mountains in a long time. But in that moment, all that concrete dust rolling through, and I was, here I am in a town with rules and everything, and I couldn't get anyone to follow the rules. And the rules are you use water, you know, so that the dust isn't flying everywhere. And so I really had that feeling of, you know, of something being destroyed that I had built up, built up, built up. And, you know, you can still see, it's not like, strip mine damage. I mean, I can build it back up and I'm going to grow food there. And I had food in the garden when that happened, you know, but it was, it was such a, 
sacrilege, really. I felt really defiled. I felt the land defiled, and I felt my labor defiled, and my love defiled, and I couldn't believe that they were doing it, and that no one cared. That's what we're up against, even here in the middle of town. And it's not at the same level of destruction that people in the mountains have to face and try to recover from, I don't know how sometimes. There are so many people out there that don't care about land. When you do care about it, it's really hard to take. So I don't know, I feel like all the people I met in the book that are in the book and people I interviewed, one of the people I interviewed said, you've created a community of strangers through this. And so I guess I feel that, like we're, we're a community of strangers, all these people who care about the land and want to grow food, and, and that it's not something cool to do. You know, it's not hip. It's something way more than that. And to be organic, it's, you know, I've been thinking about organic since I was 20. Bev May's been thinking about it since, you know, we talked a lot about organic gardening and her mother and grandmother. And so that's not about being hip, really, though I'm glad it's more hip now, finally. I feel vindicated a little bit. You know, I've got a compost pile in my backyard, and I just keep trying to in some way recreate my life in the country. I think that's what I'd say, both with personal relations and how I treat the land, I don't know. I planted a bunch of trees in the yard. Somebody came up one time during trick-or-treating and said, oh my gosh, you're reforesting Belcourt. And I said, I'm trying, I'm trying my best. You know, there's service trees out there. So your listeners in the mountains will know what service trees are. Well, you, you talk about the toxic air and the dust in your yard, but maybe that's part of the answer of why you do it is you've gone back. You're still, you're not going to give up on that piece and you're, you're still adding to it. No, I have it. to regenerate it yeah. now. You're here at my house and we look, we're going to walk out there, but you saw I have all this manure laying on the garden and I'm just, you know, going to start over. After that happened, I was, I was really very upset and obsessed. I still am a little bit, but I had to find some way to not be angry, you know, because I live here and I mean, I can't get out a gun and shoot everyone, even though in, inside myself, that's how I felt, you know. I felt violent, like this violent thing had been done, and instead of me being peaceful, I felt violent, you know. And so I had to figure out some way to, I don't have a gun, I don't want to use a gun. And so I had to think of some way to heal myself from this experience, right? And so I usually do that by reading poetry or something like that, uh, besides working, doing, going ahead and doing my work. I found this book by this guy named Robert Pogue Harrison. I think that's right. And it's called Gardens, an essay on the human condition. And so I started reading it. Someone had given it to me, and I'd put it on in my bookcase, and I had never really looked at it. And I pulled it out, and there it was, everything I needed. And he talks a lot about how to 
improve the soil. He both was talking about the garden literally, but also metaphorically. And that good soil requires that you give more to it than you take from it. And so that's, you know, a wonderful way to think about life, you know, and that life, if you think about it, life can't be had by just taking, taking, taking. You have to give more than take or else there won't be life. I mean, literally, there won't be life. That essay really helped me a lot, and so I wrote a paper about it. <laughs> and I went back and visited the interviews from the gardeners. This is after the book, Row by Row, was already finished. And so I just gave a paper about it at the Oral History Association meeting last fall, and then a similar one just last week at Appalachian Studies. And I found all the ways people that I interviewed give more than they take. That's a way I sort of healed myself. And it was also a nice way to end this project in a way, uh, to think about how all these people in different ways are. So some people are giving more than they take by trying to teach young people how to grow food and especially young people that have been thrown away by society in a lot of cases. Some people are giving more than they take by sharing what they grow with their neighbors. Some people are giving more than they take by rejuvenating the land and going organic. Some people are giving more than they take by working in their communities in garden project, gardening projects. So this was really helpful for me and also just another way to think about gardening. It's more than just the fresh food that you grow. You're really making connections and belonging to sort of larger things in our world that ultimately are held together by, I think, good work, some kind of good work, however it is you need to do that work, and some kind of love. You know, it's, it's, some, it's something about love and belonging that I think gardeners... Oh, and this, this person says in the essay, he says something really radical. Um, I, could, I can go get the book and read it if we need to actually quote it, but... He says, you know, if you're going to give the world over to anyone to lead, it ought to be to gardeners. <laughs> so because of these things we're talking about. So. Well, I, and I was going to ask you, you know, you and today you were saying one of the motivations for doing this was you thinking, well, why am I doing this? Why when I can just run down the street and get it? And it seems like you're you are coming to some answers. Right. Oh, and one thing I, I left out, I'm not a religious person, um, but lots of the gardeners I interviewed definitely are. And, there, and that's one thing I, I left out, I think, because I often don't literally think about religion that much or spirituality. But a lot of the gardeners really, I mean, they're doing it for a lot of reasons, just like I am. It's not just one reason. But many of them feel a very spiritual connection to land and that that is something that is really meaningful for them. That's an added benefit, you know, is this spiritual connection they get from working land. 
And so I think I've come to see myself as more spiritual from this project than I ever did before because people have convinced me that I must be, you know, from listening to them talk and how they talk about their connection to the land. So I don't know, that was sort of a, a um, surprise outcome for myself of the project. I didn't anticipate that at all. That ends this broadcast of Mountain Talk Monday, and I've been your host, Kelly Haywood. We at WMMT hope you enjoyed the show. Mountain Talk Monday is posted to the WMMT website, www.wmmt.org, every Tuesday for streaming, and is also available to download as a podcast. We want to give a special thanks to Kate Black for sharing her home, garden, and work with our listeners. Her book, Row by Row, Talking with Kentucky Gardeners, is available from Ohio University Press. And to our listeners, thank you for spending the hour with us.